Kia ora. You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in local and family history from Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. No mai, haere mai. Last year, linguist Susan Verin and historian David Verin transcribed the journals of Isaac Rhodes Cooper from 1850 to 1856. In this talk, Susan and David describe the challenges of transcribing the young British officers' journals and what they learnt about Cooper's several excursions around the Upper North Island. During COVID lockdown last year, David and I volunteered to transcribe Isaac Rhodes Cooper's journals of 1850 to 1856 about his travels in the Upper North Island. No one had attempted this before that we know of. He was 31 when he wrote of the places he went to and the people he met. My own background is in studying linguistics and Latin at Auckland University over a decade ago. Proofreading my husband's and others' writing is something I have done for over 10 years, so I'm used to scrutinizing sentences and words. This transcription enigma I found was harder than attempting a giant crossword puzzle where a dictionary is not going to help you much. Cooper writes in English, but the writing is very small, almost indecipherable in parts. Uh, there are mistakes in some people's names and even in place names that perhaps showed he was guessing them. David had resources to fix those names as well as applying his own knowledge. Cooper wasn't always consistent with the letters of the alphabet and how he wrote them, so that added to the challenge. With comparisons of letters like S or G, for example, we were forced to scour his work to find. It could be frustrating, but where one of us couldn't, couldn't transcribe something, the other one would provide backup. So we complemented each other in the skills required. I've never transcribed anything before from older English except from Chaucer. David had a little experience too. Needless to say, we had lots of breaks doing this and did a couple of hours each day usually and felt relieved the moment it was finished. <laughs> it actually was a real challenge, but satisfying in the end. Kia ora, everyone. First of all, I'd better explain um, the silhouette image on the screen here. Uh, this is provided um, to us by uh, descendants of Isaac Rhodes Cooper's uh, family and uh, purports to show a silhouette of him. Uh, we do have one or two other images which we believe are him, but uh, so for the moment, I'm afraid you'll have to uh, stick with the silhouette. Isaac Rhodes Cooper was born on 3rd of June 1819 in Finchley, London to Isaac Sutton and Rebecca Deborah Cooper. Now, her maiden name was Rhodes, so hence his middle name. Isaac Sutton Cooper was a wealthy landowner and member of the London Stock Exchange. Now, this isn't actually the family home, but this is similar to sorts of the environment that he grew up with and grew up in. 
The Cooper family lived in a freehold house with 41 acres of surrounding land in what was then still a rather rural part of Middlesex at Park Hall in Finchley. And that's a map of the area. And you can see, hopefully you can see um, Park Hall as the third one along from the left. Now, Isaac Rhodes was the eldest of nine children. Unlike the rest of his siblings, who largely lived their lives on the family estate, or later in Brighton, Isaac pursued a more challenging career in the army. On 23rd of April, 1839, he purchased the rank of ensign in the 58th Foot Regiment, and then the rank of lieutenant on 16th of November, 1841. The regiment was at that time based in Ireland, and he later arrived in New South Wales as part of the 58th Regiment on 30th of July, 1844. Now, this particular image, as you can see, courtesy of Auckland War Memorial Museum, we, this is a free download, and this shows officers of the 58th Regiment. It says 1845 to 1859, but I'm dating this early 1856 or 1857, and Colonel Winyard is the gentleman on the uh, uh, lower centre, and after consultation with uh, at least one of the descendants, we believe, believe that the person who's sitting on the left-hand side there is Mr. Cooper. However, we've been able to uh, satisfactorily convince the Auckland War Memorial Museum uh, photograph people that that is in fact him. But uh, we believe that we have got that uh, he's the most likely person in terms of another one-third image that we have of him. So uh, that's the gentleman there. So from the 2nd of October, 1846, this is in New South Wales, Isaac became a magistrate, paymaster, and adjutant for the New South Wales Mounted Police before moving to Auckland in November, 1847 as part of Colonel Winyard's command. In New Zealand, he was appointed adjutant from 7th of January, 1848, and purchased a captaincy on 18th of July, 1851. He had sufficient funds to purchase, with a mortgage, at least 209 acres on Auckland's North Shore and likely grow, grew wheat and ran horses. He also purchased land at Oriwa and at Waikumiti. From July, 1856, he returned to England to visit his family and returned on 2nd of June, 1857. And this is another um, older image of him. So if I just flick back, gentleman on the uh, far left bottom and him there. Okay. Before leaving, this is in 1856, it is claimed Isaac had a child to Taimihi in Northland, and that child was called Mary Taimihi but they couldn't be located upon his return. He later sold his commission as captain on the 18th of December, 1857. We should note that the purchase of commissions in the British Army only ended in 1871. And he went on to serve on the Auckland Provincial Council on two separate occasions. Uh, although retired from the army, he later became a major in the Whanganui militia in the early 1860s, then the Thames militia in the 1870s, 
and the Manly, that's Manly in Sydney, Australia, Manly Militia in the late 1880s. He had a relationship with Rayuma or Rayuna in late 1860 or 1861, and then married this lady here, Rora or Laura Tamakohi in 1864. After a death in 1875, he went on to marry Sarah Alexander in 1877. Sarah died in 1888, and Isaac Rhodes Cooper died in Sydney in 1889. So that just gives you the background, if you like, to the man whose journals we are going to be talking about. Now, the manuscript itself. Auckland Library's records note the item was donated in August 1940. But when it was donated, it was called Mr. Cotier's Diary. Goodness knows where that came from, but that's how it was donated. And it was donated courtesy of a F.A. Strong of 52 Ponsonby Road, Ponsonby. Now, we cannot try locate who this Mr. Cotier is. It may have uh, written the diary, and we cannot locate Mr. Strong of 52 Ponsonby Road. And the other point was there was no authorship acknowledged in the text of the journal. So it actually came down to some more recent library detective work by process of elimination to actually confirm that Cooper is the author of the journal. Now, if you look at the physical journal, and there's, you can look at a copy of the original journal on Auckland Library's website, there's a reference to a Jack Herogy, Herogy, Herogty, H-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, but yeah. On the inside covers, now we can't trace that one, and a reference to travelling from New Zealand to Sydney. Now, this may be from 2nd of June, 1880, when Cooper left for there permanently with wife and two of his three children. The manuscript provides accounts of journeys taken in New Zealand while during the years of 1850 to 1856 and commences with, while quartered in New Zealand from 1850 to 1856, I took several excursions into the country. And having kept journal of, journals of these excursions, I propose making a deposit of them in this book, that is the manuscript, as these journals were only kept in pencil, they're likely to become obliterated. Thus, the journals themselves, the final journals, would like to be compiled in late 1856 or early 1857 when he was in England. Now, those journals are actually in seven parts. Part one covers a journey from Auckland to the Manukau Heads of 13th to the 16th of March, 1860, 1850, at this time that uh, Cooper is with Colonel Winyard and others. There's a visit to Cornwallis and Karamangahapi and provides brief details on the earlier settlement there. Part two covers Auckland to the Bay of Islands, and this is 24th of June to 5th of July, 1850, again with Colonel Winyard and other officers, and also a daughter of Pamare, who was returning from a visit to Whanganui. Uh, Cooper refers negatively to trading missionaries, and um, as my wife will cover sooner later, sooner, that his brother was an Anglican clergyman back in Brighton. Part three covers Auckland to Taupo, by the Waihu, East Coast Lakes, and back by Waikato. And that's that image there. 
Now, um, top left, we have Auckland, the Auckland Isthmus. If you're wondering what little yellow bits are, they're actually um, just to note the day-by-day -day progress through, and you can see he moves over to the Coromandel Peninsula, over to Mataku, Makatu, comes down through Rotorua, and eventually ends up in Taupo down the bottom here, and then slowly makes his way back up. And of course, it should be noted that one of the things that when you're a British officer is that you learn how to draw. So you can draw the uh, battlements or whatever fortifications that you're about to storm. And you also learn to draw maps. And so we have an uh, example of his, uh, his work here. Now, this journey was from the 30th of November to the 31st of December, 1850. And he did that with a captain and Mrs. Russell. She's, on, she's so uh, husband, wife, and they travel on foot, by horse, or on waka. And it should be noted that this particular journal, journey takes up 60% of the total journal itself. So 60% of, of the total journal is taken up by this particular voyage. Now, part four, Remember in part three, part four is an expedition to Kaipara to assist the crew of the French ship, the Alamein, which had been wrecked on the Kaipara coast on the 3rd of June, 1851. So this particular journal covers the period 16th to the 24th of June, 1851. And it should be noted, um, it's a quite a short uh, description and the Cooper has a minor role in that. Now, part five, we're covering Auckland to Rotomahana, another inland journey. And this one was returning via the Waikato. And that one took from 3rd to 30th of January, 1851. So you can see he does these things on his summer holidays. With Lieutenant Chesney of the Royal Engineers and others. Part six covers the voyage from the Auckland to the Whanganui River by Waipa and the interior, and back to Rotuahi, Taupo, the lakes, east coast, Thames, and Coromandel. Unfortunately, there's no map for this. That covers the period from 4th of October to the 20th of November, 1852. And this time he's traveling with Major Hume and Dr. Thompson. At this point in time, he's still a lieutenant. Until part six, he becomes a captain. However, there's very relatively little detail regarding either the last two journeys, that's the one from Auckland to Rotomahana or the one to Auckland to the Whanganui River, but parts are summarised in the book he later um, wrote, and that book was called The New Zealand Settler's Guide, A Sketch of the Present State of the Six Provinces with a Digest of the Constitution and Land Regulations. This was published in London in 1857 by E. Stanton, and it was published basically to induce um, settlers to come out to, to the new colony of uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now, there's a personally annotated copy of this uh, New Zealand Settlers Guide at the State Library of New South Wales, so hopefully I can, we can visit that some stage soon and see way, what he may have updated and changed, because we understand there are some um, the noted annotations. Now, uh, Susan made a comment about my being able to find out 
uh, names and places. And that was very much helped by two comparative accounts of similar visits to the northern half of the North Island by other Pākehā travellers, and both helped immensely, as I said, when, particularly when trying to track down the place names. Now, the first one of these is by a G.S. Cooper, as opposed to an I.R. Cooper, and there's no relation, no family relation here. And he gave a detailed account of an official government visit, which was reproduced in the Journal of an Expedition Overland from Auckland. Now, this covered literally the same route that uh, Cooper was late to cover, and was um, and, and the journey, their journey was actually from 5th of December 1849 to 8th of January 1850. While not published until 1851, it was serially published in Takarari Māori, the Māori Messenger, from 15th of August 1850 to 14th of August 1851. So obviously it was spanned out quite a bit. And just to note that um, uh, Cooper's visit to Tolpo was, of course, uh, the following summer from that. Now, the second of the two is, uh, it was written by Alexander Kennedy, and he wrote a um, publication called Notes of a Short Tour into the Interior of the Northern Colony of New Zealand. Now, this uh, predates uh, Cooper again, but was not published it was published in the New Zealand newspaper, but not separately until 1852. But at least we can, we can say that Cooper had access to both G.S. Cooper's and Alexander Kennedy's text. So we're still at part six in terms of the journals, and we come to part seven, which is actually the shortest of all the parts of the journals. And this part seven covers the period from 1853 to 1856. So although it's quite a long period, it's quite a short piece in the journals. Cooper was employed farming on his land on the North Shore and traveling about the Northern District. From August to December 1855, he was sent with his company to Taranaki. Now there's not much detail on that. It's just basically he goes to the Taranaki with his regiment. And from 14th of July, 1856, he travels from Auckland back to England on the vessel, the Prince of Wales. Now, the fact that he travels on the Prince of Wales, this enabled his identification as the author. It's interesting though that a large part of the diary of that voyage is actually not Cooper's diary. It's actually that of a son of Sir Frederick Whitaker. Now his son was called Fred, and was traveling to England with Cooper and was to be educated at Marlborough and Westminster public schools. He was later called to the bar of the Inner Temporal in 1868, London, of course, but following financial difficulties, he committed suicide here in Auckland in 1887. Now, to, uh, Susan was talking about the process we went through to um, uh, transcribe the journal, and just to reconfirm that there was uh, over the first COVID lockdown, in 2020, and Susan's linguistic skills really made the difference. As Susan says, Cooper's writing was difficult to read, and we bounced our versions off each other. And she will now outline elements of his writings and explain attitudes that he picked up through the transcription. So we're looking at some excerpts from the actual journals. So this is what we trans some of what we transcribed, a very small part of it. 
Um, so what I'm going to do is read them out individually and comment after the majority of them about what you're looking at. So first of all, we have pages five and six. The morning being fine and wind more favorable, we again started in our boat. And after a favorable journey through the intricate Manukau, we arrived at Karangahapi. Now on his journey in 1850, Cooper arrives with his group and is clearly enjoying the traveling experience. He uses the word favorable twice, not the best way to write an, ad an adjective in the same sentence and repeating it. However, they arrive at a kainga or unfortified Maori settlement on the west coast of Auckland. Then we come to pages seven and eight, but up to 1853 or four, the demand, supply crossed out by the author, has been sufficiently supplied by hard labor in the more immediate neighborhood of Auckland. We're talking here about timber. He originally writes the sentence with supply and supplied in the same sentence. Not the best English, but he recognizes that and changes supply to demand. So he is self-correcting. Did he think someone would one day read this? Now, page 20, commander of the brig to pull up the Kerry Kerry River on our way to the Waimati. The Kerry Kerry is situated about four hours pull from Wahapu or about nine miles from the mouth of the head at which we found Mr. Kemp's station. Mr. Kemp, Mr. James Kemp is another specimen of a trading missionary. He has built a fine stone store at the head of the Kerry Kerry and done well for himself, but neglected his missionary duties. A younger brother of Cooper was a vicar in Brighton, England, and it is interesting that he refers to Kemp in this way. Then we have page 23. The distance from Kemp's um, station to Waimati is about 10 miles. We crossed a stream, but the road is reasonably good. The missionary at White Matty is the Reverend Mr. Bedell. The correct name was Burroughs. The only Bay of Islands missionary who appeared to us to have done his duty. Again, it's interesting to note how he distinguishes between the activities of the different missionaries. With his officer training, he was always precise about distances as in this quote and also in the journal. He itemized all the goods they carried in their group, including amounts of food and implements. Now, page 26, after visiting Waimati Church, we returned to the Wahapu. The land about Waimati is the best land I saw at the bay, and the cattle is therefore the fattest. But all this land is in the hands of either the missionaries or natives. Page 29, the scenery in general about this bay is particularly romantic as far as hills, wood, and water. Each are scenic, romantic, but the land overlaps that around by their impressions is bad. That last sentence appears a bit clumsy by today's standards. 
but that is what we saw occasionally in transcribing. He repeats the word romantic here, which is showing how important that was to him. The use of scenery and scenic is repeating itself a bit. So like on page five and initially page eight, there are instances of repetition, which with slightly better English, you would avoid. Page 38. The Maoris here were very hospitable, offered us a foray and gave our people food. This occurs frequently on the trips. And the last quote that I've got, I think David has some more, um, pages 40 and 41. We found some beautiful peach gardens belonging to the natives. And as we found no one in them, we took the liberty of appropriating some of them and were followed by two Maoris in a canoe, a waka, who could not catch up with us. Our own Maoris pulling well, learning they would have to give all their clothes up for payment according to native customs. He might find humor in, the, in, in this incident, but note, it's not the Pākehā members who might give up their clothes, yet it was likely a Pākehā decision to steal the peaches, as the Māori accompanying them were working for payment from their Pākehā employers. It does show a level of entitlement to what was available. One wonders whether his group would have made the same decision if the peaches had been in Mr. Kemp's backyard. When we look at the totality of these statements by Cooper, to him, New Zealand is a land of plenty, scenic, romantic, hospitable, very tempting to want land, which he bought legitimately, run a business like the missionaries, or take peaches ripe for the picking. Actually, as just to confirm uh, Susan's point uh, about the uh, about the diary, that the tone of the well, the journals, I think that's probably the better description, is generally descriptive of the local countryside, along with names of various people he meets. With unfortunately little further description, he does mention Henry Williams and James Kemp and the bioviolence. He mentions Archdeacon Ab Alfred Nesbitt Brown, a Tauranga. He mentions the Reverend Thomas Chapman at Makatu, and he mentions Deacons John Morgan and Benjamin Yates Ashwell in the Waikato on the return journey. But we don't get very much detail about them other than that. Now, just another example of the text, and this, this just, just summed up um, perhaps uh, the fun he was having. On the way, I amused myself at duck shooting and had a good swim across one of the rapids, carrying my clothes while one of my natives swam with my gun. The scenery at this part of the river became gradually gravelly till we arrived at a small pebbly stream at the foot of the waterfall. So actually quite, quite interesting descriptions. Now, this gives us three things here. We have his ability as a mapper, have his ability as a drawer of scenes, and also gives you an idea of some of his handwriting. And of course, that's what we use for the, for the promo uh, document we use, because it just nicely brought those three things together. 
Um, when I was looking through some of the other images that uh, he'd written, uh, some of them I had to figure, well, his pictures of geysers particularly, I had to, it took some imagination before I actually figured out that that's what he was talking about rather than some columns sticking up in the air. But um, nevertheless, nevertheless, so this area denotes the, the Makatu Rotorua area. And of course, at that time, pink and white terraces, and that's before the Tarawiwa eruption. Now, he describes them in part as follows. At Rotamahana, in a small camp, and may be seen all the wonders of the volcanic districts of New Zealand. Here is everything to cause wonder and admiration to the traveller. The most magnificent and luminous of hot baths, geysers of boiling water, clear as crystal, geysers clouded with steam, steam of various hues of dark colour, of light green colour, geysers of mud, small lakes of the purest blue of light face. And as you can see, we've got some maps and some drawings. And that's another one of the Rotorua area. So again, we've got his ability with maps and the, um, and the handwriting with which we needed to deal. And of course, I used a highlighter to pinpoint some of the names. Some That then enabled me to go back to some of the uh, contemporary maps and more recent maps to actually pinpoint what he was actually trying to say in terms of identifying different parts. Now, uh, Rangiwafia, which is near Tawamutu in the Waikato, is described as, quote, with a well-built church and good school at which from 40 to 50 half-caste children are being educated at the small end of the scale. The Maoris around this district have built five mills walked by, worked by water power. We observed several natives at work for ploughing with horses and bullocks. Indeed, they appear to be well acquainted with all sorts of farm work. And as before, all these comments are from late 1850. Maori are variously referred to in the text as natives, Maoris, plural, of course, and one as an old savage. And that particular person uh, was one that Cooper claimed overcharged them for use of a horse, and then the man demanded it back before time. But most of the time, well, almost exclusively, he's referred them to either as natives or Maoris. Now, there's also a description of a Pākehā Māori. Now, I think you understand what that um, is in the phrase of, uh, in, in, in the sense of a, a Pākehā who has um, adopted Māori um, ways and is actually living in Māori communities, likely has taken a Māori wife, has, Māori, has uh, children with, with, with a Māori wife. And he goes on to call them a species of runaway sailors who settled in New Zealand before it had English government and notes the fact of a Maori wife. And the particular one he's talking to is a Mr. Randall. And he says, paddled to Mr. Randall's on the Waikato. Randall is one of the last species of the old Pākehā Maori. The old villain has some pretty half-caste half -cast daughters 
one of whom we were told he had lately sold to a Maori against his will for a horse. Now note that he writes, we are told. And none of the other descriptions, and there are only very few descriptions of Randall I could find, actually make mention of that. So it's one of these things that um, did that actually happen or is this something that he's been told by someone else? I'll leave it up to you to uh, uh, come to a conclusion on that one, if a conclusion can be drawn. Generally, Cooper valued Maori fighting skills and acknowledged the already adopted adoption of new agricultural technologies. And again, don't forget, this is Aotearoa New Zealand in the early 1850s. Aotearoa New Zealand is still majority Maori population. And it's not till the end of the 1850s that that leap from a minority to a majority of the inhabitants of New Zealand are, are Pākehā. So this is in a society where Maori are still still the majority. Over the years, Cooper had at least four Maori partners with children to three of these. Now, I've actually uh, written, uh, one of the other things that we did in lockdown was it enabled me to uh, write some articles for, for instance, the New Zealand Genealogist. And if you want to follow up, this is from the August 2020 issue of that uh, magazine. And I've actually written uh, there some more details about uh, Cooper and the four identifiable Maori partners that uh, he had. I um, hope we've, I've been in contact with at least one of the descendants of, um, of, of, of one of those Maori partners, but I was hoping that by publishing the New Zealand genealogists, we might um, um, unearth some more of those as well. On the various journeys that Cooper has, he described being welcomed and treated with hospitality by the iwi he meets. And as Susan said, that's something that appears to be a common thing, that he's acknowledged as a British officer and a visitor and is treated with courtesy for most of his journey through the, um, this part of New Zealand. Now, I also, uh, one of the other things I did when I was in lockdown, I also wrote an article for The Volunteers, which is the magazine of the New Zealand Military History Society. And this one enabled me to write uh, something about his uh, military uh, career, such as this. Um, it's, although he made, he made, he made the, man, the rank of captain while still in the 58th Regiment and later on became a major in the various different militias I outlined, he never served under fire. So he was good at training other people, if you like, who went on to serve under fire, but he himself didn't. Uh, but um, I think, think he, he, he still did have a successful uh, military career. His political career wasn't uh, quite so successful. He did stand for uh, the provincial council, successful on two occasions, as I noted, but his attempts to stand for uh, the uh, New Zealand parliament were uh, um, unsuccessful, and um, I, I talk a little bit about that in the magazine as well. So just in conclusion or summary, we found that this was an interesting but challenging exercise when to describing his um, Cooper's journeys through the northern half of the North Island. And as I said before, at this time, Aotearoa 
New Zealand still is a predominantly Maori population. It's the missionaries obviously have been in uh, New Zealand for some years and particularly have penetrated into the, into the Bay of Plenty and into the Waikato. And also the uh, spread of agricultural technologies, particularly flour mills and um, European uh, products, uh, peaches and apples and uh, corn have uh, um, uh, come into the, into the Waikato quite, quite, uh, quite significantly at this time. We are glad that, <laughs> that we had the opportunity to transcribe the journals and hope we've helped you understand that period a little more. Now, I will say that uh, we have done that, we've provided a uh, transcription. The original journal is up on the Auckland Library's website in the... Um, uh, manuscripts online uh, section, and we're now waiting for that transcription to actually be hosted on that website as well. Stay tuned for more tracks in this Heritage Talk series, or visit the Auckland Library's website for other podcast tracks. Kia manawaho. Enjoy. Enjoy.